Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Hey, y'all. Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, I think they were, they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, dailydownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com.
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. You all know I talk to world, buddy, but he couldn't drive a pig up a belly goat foot on nothing but Daytona and Talladega. Boy, can you guys this car? I said, well, I ain't never done it. Damn it, boy, I didn't ask you if you'd ever done it. You know how you get drivers who would say a few things out of the way about the team or about a pit stop? That didn't last long with Bud Moore. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace, and a track and a good group of people who really do care about NASCAR history. And Steve, there are a couple of things from last week's episode that I wanted to follow up on. I'm all ears. First of all, I think that I have solved the mystery of the five cars that Dick May drove at Dover in the spring of 1975. All right. So here we go. You ready for this? He started the race in a car owned by Ed Negree, but fell out early. And his reason out for that race officially is quit. (laughs) Yeah. And according to his daughter, Joni, he then relief drove for Dick Brooks, Walter Ballard, Ed Negree, and Henley Gray. That's according to her. Now, I don't know what kind of documentation she has. She did say that it came from a source who was actually at the race and not too drunk to tell the tale. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that limits the field somewhat. (laughs) Well, I don't know. (laughs) Back in that day and time, I do not know. She also said that it made sense because her dad had a history with all those drivers. And if anyone else can shine light on the events of that day, she said that she would be happy to listen. And at this point, who knows for sure. So there's that Dick Brooks, Walter Ballard, Edna Gray, and Henley Gray were the other four drivers that Dick may relieve that day. Now for them to relieve it, that means that each one of them got back into the car for Dick to be available to the next Man, that must have been a hot, hot day. It was Dover. And of course, at that time, Dover was a 500 lap race. You and I both have sat through many a 500 lap race at Dover. It is an endurance contest. It sure is. Well, then our friend Hallie Emery pops up on Twitter and says that he remembers reading about that day in Greg Fielden's book series, 40 Years of Stock Car Racing. And he said that he thought that it took place at Darlington. Which could make sense because, as you well know, the Southern 500 at Darlington, now that is, can be a very hot day as well. No. Also very humid down there. So that opened up another can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> so we might have to keep digging a little bit. Also, you and I had this big discussion last week about whether or not we would take a ride with Richard Petty in a race car at Daytona. I said, absolutely. Yes. And you said, 
Absolutely no. That's correct. Well, I put it up for a vote on Twitter. I didn't know this. (laughs) Of the 433 votes cast, 58.9% agreed with me and said, heck yes. 18.7% said yes, they would ride, but maybe with some reservations. Uh, uh 6.9% said maybe. 15.5% 15.5% were chicken like you <laughs> <laughs> and said, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a smart chicken. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brought up some back and forth on Twitter. And of course people had comments. I responded that not only would my answer have been heck yes, I would have also worn a Bobby Allison cap and a t-shirt just to make sure that Richard's right foot got really heavy. On the accelerator. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Matt Miles said, where's the waiver? Pins in my hand right now. (laughs) Robert James said, also killed in the crash was, is as likely as famous as I'll ever get. (laughs) (laughs) So sure. Stan Brown said, I'd ride on the roof if I had to. But of course, my favorite was from Sandy Estep. She said, heck, 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 yes. I would do a ride along during a race. And you know what? I have absolutely zero doubt that she would. You have to look at this whole thing from my perspective, okay? I'm a motorsports writer. They see me every week in the crowd here. They love to play practical jokes on riders. For example, it was my birthday, October 6th at Charlotte. And Jeff Hammond and some of the Budweiser crew from, from Junior's old days, happy birthday. And they proceeded to celebrate by throwing me over a car's hood. Now, Steve, and- this ain't that kind of podcast. What were they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so First time there, I didn't know. But they had my arm twisted behind me. That's how they wished me happy birthday. <laughs> now I'm driving along the interstate in Alabama, 60 miles an hour. I feel a bump on my rear end and I turn around and look and Steve Marcus in a passenger car, <laughs> two inches off my rear bumper. <laughs> I've had Bobby Allison and Carrie Arborough both invite me to fly. And both of them had these wicked evil grins on their faces when they made that invitation. No way was I getting that plane with either one of those guys. So you have to understand. I've got a much different perspective about how all this is supposed to go down. And my perspective is, is this, no, (laughs) I ain't going to do it. Well, here's what I would do. If I ever got in a race car with Richard Petty, even today, I know what you would do. I would climb in, I would strap in and I would look over at him and go, wuss. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you bring some toilet paper. Steve, this week in our first segment, I sat down with Phil Thomas and Donnie Wingo and Harold Stott, and they all worked for Bud Moore once upon a time. And this week they talk about how they wound up working for Bud and how they stayed with the team through the years. And this is what really impressed me. This seemed to be more than just a business arrangement. You work for me. You do what I say, and I'll pay you at the end of the week or month or whatever. They really did seem to be a family. 
That pretty much was the way Bud Moore's teams were. I don't remember a lot of turnover in his ranks over the years. Not a lot at all. It seemed to me that the same guys worked for him year after year after year. And it's a very informal arrangement. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the April 23rd, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene. Now, I have to ask you, does that issue hold any special significance to you? Uh, just off the top of your head, does it hold uh, any? It sounds like around the time I started at Grand National Scene. Well, what do you know about that? Very good. <laughs> this right. is the very first issue for which you served as the executive editor of Grand National Scene. How about that? There are a couple of things that stand out about the issue other than that. First of all, there's a feature on Bud Moore's crew and Harold Stott is shown during a pit stop front and center in one of the three photos on the outside cover. So I thought that that was cool. The connection to you being your first issue, the connection to the interview that we're doing today. Now, second, there have been a charity basketball game involving several people in the racing community, a lot like Corey LaJoy's kickball tournament a few weeks ago. And there's one picture of Ricky Rudd with the basketball and another of Del Earnhardt wearing a pair of cutoff jean jorts <laughs> going up for a layup. George? What is George? They're cutoff jeans. <laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. Okay. <laughs> and then on the back is a Wrangler ad featuring Dale. And in the Wrangler ad, his jeans have not been cut off into jorts. <laughs> Steve, this week. We do have new Patreon support from Isaac Jekyll and PayPal help from Andrew Babbitt. Now, both of them, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention. Isaac, first of all, he tweeted that he had signed up to support us on Patreon. And this is what he said. I listened to this podcast more than I use Peacock. So I canceled that and I'm now supporting the scene vault. <laughs> Instead. So I guess we'll just have to send our apologies to NBC <laughs> and go about our business. But also Isaac's Twitter bio describes him as the last Scott Wimmer fan. Oh, how about that? I bet he probably is. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what the connection there is. I think that Isaac, if I gathered correctly, I think that Isaac is from Wisconsin up from around where Scott was. So that's the connection there, I think. And then Andrew sent along a note with his PayPal support that read, just having a Diet Pepsi, <laughs> <laughs> listening to the scene ball. How you doing, Rick? Ha ha. Keep it up. So Andrew's sending along some jokes <laughs> along with his support and kicking a man while he's down. Come on, Andrew. <laughs> Actually, a boy, Andrew, keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, here's the deal. I'm actually doing okay. Cutting down on my diet Pepsi. I'm doing okay. I mean, I don't enjoy drinking unsweet tea with no sweetener or whatever, but eh. you'll get there. You'll get there. Are you still down to one a day? I'm still down to one a day. All right. I'm still, maybe if we can get. Ron Howard or Tom Hanks to retweet one of our tweets. Then I would give it, give up diet Pepsi forever. <laughs> My two favorite actors of all time. Yeah. Maybe we can work something out with them. 
I tell you what, if either one of them does anything on Twitter for us or about us, I'll join you. In other words, <laughs> I'll, I'll figure something to cut out too. <laughs> so listeners, seriously, if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, support us by dropping a five-star rating and a written review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you catch us on. You can support us at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. And also just as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. Well, guys, just to start off with, let's go ahead and introduce yourself. Just tell me your name and when you started with Bud and maybe what you did for the team. Well, I'm Phil Thomas. I started, I think, in about 1980. I was uh, friends with Benny Parsons, and I started traveling some with Benny when he was at MC Anderson and LG DeWitt. And uh, then when Benny went with Bud, I went with Bud, just, you know, as a hanger-on. And then when Benny left, I stayed. I met her on Donnie, and so I stayed. And uh, let me tell you how I got my job. Sure, absolutely. Well, <laughs> we was at Bristol. I, 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 I used to hand the second can to Ken Myler. He was a gas man. And we was over at Bristol one year, and uh, Ken had retired, and Bud had another gas man. And he, fired, he got mad at that boy and fired him that day for some reason. And he came to me and he said, boy, he called me boy. <laughs> and I, 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 wasn't, I, wasn't, I think I was about 38 at the time. <laughs> Anyhow, he said, boy, can you gas this car? I said, well, I ain't never done it. Damn it, boy, I didn't ask you if you'd ever done it. <laughs> I asked you if you can do it. I said, yes, sir, I can do it. <laughs> so that's how I started. I think I done it 13 times that day. <laughs> so you were the, you gassed the car. Yeah. Donnie, how about you? I started in, uh, well, go ahead and introduce yourself. Donnie Wingo started <clears> in uh, 1984, 84, 85, somewhere along in there. I was working for uh, Jimmy Means, and I lived in Spartanburg, so I was driving back and forth to Forest City, City every day. So uh, I decided I want to be a little closer to home. Got Me and my wife just got married and had a little one on the way, so decided to uh, Moved back home and go to work for Buds. And I stayed there to 19. I left there in 95. Okay. I worked there 11 years. Wow. All right. How about you, sir? I'm Harold Stott. You want me to start my racing career when I started? Hey, this is your ball game. You tell your story how you want to tell it. Well, I tell you, Phil, and I don't try to know this not. Spencer, G.C. Spencer. Okay. Okay. I used when I'd get off from work, I'd go and get a shop. One evening I went down there and I walked in and Spencer was just cussing and throwing twos. I said, GC, what's wrong? He said, I done put two fuel pumps on this thing. Said I can't get neither one of them to work. I said, Well, give me a half inch socket extension and a ratchet and a half inch and nine sixteenths open and I'll fix it for you. You're hired. <laughs> so uh, 
He said, I done put two on it. I said, well, just give me, give me the one you want to put back on it. He said, well, just put that in there back on it. I said, it ain't going to work, though. Well, I took it off. And on the shovel, if you have, it had a rod from the camshaft down to the fuel pump finger come out. And it, it pushed it, it push that gas in the, in the carburetors. And I took it off, and I seen I know what he'd done when he told me. And I looked around, and I said, uh, Spencer, you got a hacksaw blade? He said, what you gonna saw off? I said, I ain't gonna saw nothing off. I said, just get me a plate, get me a blade, and I'll show you what I'm gonna do. And I got my blade to teeth the bait and push that rod back up, clip my fuel pump in there, put, got it started, and I hooked the lines up, because I know they didn't fool with it all day. I just left my lines loose. I was getting in and turn it over a little bit. And I gas started pumping out them lines I left loose. I said, hold up just one minute. I tightened the lines up, fired right up. He said, why don't you buy a bill or something like that? I said, you like to call me General Motors? I didn't have nothing to do with that. <laughs> but anyway, he said, uh, wash your hands up. I said, we're going out to Friendly Diners. I said, I want to buy you a big steak. I said, you see, you don't need to do that. He said, no, I want to. He said, I'm kind of hungry myself. So he took me down and got me a steak. But then after that, I met James Hilton. And I got to go down and help him in 1970. Well, it went on four or five months. I'd go down at night and put a motor together or help put the motor in the car or do whatever. And uh, in 71, uh, or the end of 70, he says, uh, why don't you start going to races with me? I said, okay. So I talked to my brother. He said it'd be okay. So I started helping James in 71. And my brother owned the Chevrolet store down here. And Bobby helped sponsor him through General Motors. And uh, so I did, and 72 I did. And 73, Bobby switched to Cecil Gordon. So I worked for Cecil Gordon in 73 until November of 74. And I told my brother, well, he had done sold the Chevrolet place at that time. I was working with somebody else then. And uh, I said, uh, I told Bobby and my brother, I said, uh, I'm going to see Bud Moore today. So I went to Spartanburg. Scared, I'd like a, I scared to death. Bud, you had to, once I got to know him, he was wonderful. But I was scared to death going there and we see him. Were. Huh? We all were. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I walked in there and I told the secretary, I said, uh, I like to talk to Bud Moore. Now, was he expecting you or did you just? No, I just walked in. Okay, all I right. walked in. And uh, she said, Bud, uh, Carl Stott's out here wanting to see you. He said, Tim, come on in here. And I went out there and said, I said, have a seat. We got to talking. I said, I hear you wanting to hire somebody. He said, yeah. He said, I've seen you work for another team. He said, I think everything will be all right. He said, uh, I'm going to leave in the morning going to Riverside. That's when we went to Riverside. And Buddy Baker was driving the car at that time. And you all know, I'll talk to the world, buddy, but he couldn't drive a pig up a belly goat's butt 
on the number Daytona and Talladega. Right. Okay, can you say that again, just to make sure I heard you correctly? You can drive a pig up a billy goat, but <laughs> yep, I'm in the right place. <laughs> but anyway, I to say, Buddy Bank was driving our car. Yeah, and we was at Riverside. When Saturday evening, Bud wanted to see me and Doug William. Doug, Donnie wasn't that. You was there? No, but she wasn't no, I wasn't there then. I was. What year? No. no. No, you weren't there then. No, I didn't start till 82. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> we practiced, and Buddy Baker walked, and uh, one of the other boys drove the car in the pins, in the pits, and pulled in, and we done a couple of stops, and Bud said, Buddy, and again now, he always called me Shorty. He said, how's Shorty doing? He said, I think he'll make you, think he'll be all right. He said, I, I ain't worried about him. So I, we, Buddy wound up third that day. In Riverside? At Riverside. Okay. And he had never finished in the top 20, I don't reckon. <laughs> <laughs> and we, but we'd gained four or five pit stops every time on other cars. And we wound up third. Harry Hyde was just raiding canes because we knocked him out. He was running for points. We knocked, we, we beat him for third place. Harry Hyde. Now, what were you doing for the team? I changed the tire. Okay. All right. That's what I thought. He changed rears. Yeah. And uh, so we got back to motel. It was in Riverside, California. Went back to motel, and I didn't got my shower, get ready to go get on the airplane and come home. And Bud come out there and put his arm around me. He said, Shorty, what do you think? I said, well, I had, I had a good time. I hope I done you a good job. He said, well, I'm going to tell you something. Did you get a job me as long as you want? Did you only have to worry about me? And I stayed there, what, 22 years? Yeah, you stayed there a year after I left. I left wow. right before it was Stayed there 22 years. Yeah. And yeah. then my buddy Donnie <laughs> been trying to get me to come to Travis. Yeah. And I told Bud, I said, Bud, he said, I know what you're going to talk about. I said, I done heard. He said, if you want to stay in racing business, because I'm closing my shop. I'm getting out of racing business. If you want to stay in racing, that's your best option. So Bud told you to? Yes. Yeah. And I went yeah. seen Donnie. Where was we at when I come told you? Went to come to your we was, room. Yeah, we were somewhere racing. I don't we remember where it was. We might have been watching Could have been. But anyway, I told Donnie I'd, I was coming. So I, But me and Bud stayed friends. I went to see him at least once a month, most times twice a month. Before he died, I went to see him. Yeah. You were part-time, correct? Now, what were you doing full-time? Working for Holly Farms. Okay. <clears throat> I worked for Holly Farms. <clears throat> Where, up in Wilkesboro? Or? Well, I worked I worked at Wilkesboro. I worked at Richmond. I worked at Temperanceville. I worked at Hid Night. And I worked in Seguin, Texas, and Center, Texas, South, and in the Valley. Hers, what were you, what did you do for them? Well, uh, I started out driving a truck in Charlotte, uh, selling ice pack chickens and wooden boxes. <laughs> and when I'd retired, I was a, a division manager okay. on the board of directors. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, how did that work with your racing schedule? Well. How many ra- Did you do all the races? When I, when, I, when I retired in 1992. Uh-huh. But I'd been doing all the races a while before that. 
Wow. I had two two boys work for me, Charles Gibson and Benny Benny Sharp, and I lived in Richmond at the time, and they were maintenance people. And we'd leave on Friday or sometimes Saturday and go to the race and drive all night Sunday night to get back and be at work 6 o'clock Monday morning. We'd done that week after week. Was it worth it? It was. It really was. I wouldn't take nothing for it. Now, I know you were full-time. I was full-time. And now, were you were you part-time or were you full-time? Well, he was more full-time than I was. <laughs> <laughs> he always came early. I always, I left when the car did. Yeah, he left when the car did. Yeah, yeah. I left when the car did. But it paid me, it <clears throat> paid me well. Bud, Bud was great to me. He paid me good. Okay. You know, and I drove the truck and trailer me and Doug Will for seven years. Every race we went to, California. Oh, so you were driving the truck, too? Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. So when I went there, I drove the truck, too. Yeah. See, they would, most of the time, uh, Bill Burrell was a truck driver at the time, and I had driven a truck before I started racing. So me and Bill would leave with the car, all the faraway races, like Pocono, Michigan, somewhere like that. And they wouldn't fly in until Friday morning. So me and Bill would get there, set the garage up, unload the car, take it through inspection, just the two of us. And they would fly in. They would get there about an hour or two hours before practice started. Everybody who's ever heard the name Bud Moore, they know the backstory. They know the World War II veteran. They know the D-Day veteran. You talked about how you were very nervous to go to talk to him right. that day. Who was the Bud Moore that you guys knew? Best when, man I ever worked for. Once you got to know him, who was who was the Bud Moore that you knew? Super guy. You know, like I said, he's he's probably one of the best guys I ever worked for. It he took care of his people. And no matter who drove or whatever happened, you know, you know how you get drivers who would say a few things out of the way about the team or about a pit stop or something like that. That didn't last long with Bud Moore. He took care of the people that worked for him. In what respect? How how would that? He would always stand up for the people. Okay. He would always have the team's backs, no matter what happened. I tell you, I tell you a good example. We was at <clears throat> we was at uh, Martinsville one year. I don't know why, but we went in late that day. Remember when we went down there and ate breakfast? Mm-hmm. Trickle was driving cars, and. Uh, Rusty Wallace had wrecked Dick the week before, and when we were the best shape to ever win a race with Dick Trickle. I don't know where was that, Wilkesboro? Wilkesboro, Martinsville, probably. No, it was Martinsville when this okay. happened. But anyhow, he, he, Rusty Wallace and Dick Trickle was best of friends, but Rusty spun him out and cost us a race. Well, we, we happened to be eating breakfast, and what's the name of the restaurant we used to, or motel we used to stay at in Martinsville? Dutch Inn. Dutch Inn was at the Dutch Inn. I know you know where it's at. Yeah. And they had a nice restaurant, and we was all eating breakfast. Now, we never did do that, but for some reason that morning we was eating breakfast, and, and Trickle was with us. And about that time, Rusty came in, walked in. Well, Bud started on him and cussed him and called him everything but a white man. You remember? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he lowered the boom on him. Rusty, Rusty didn't really know hardly what to say and didn't say nothing. Next thing you know, his Rusty was gone. And we didn't know what to say either. We didn't know to say nothing. But that's how Bud stood up for his drivers, and he stood up for his people. He's a good guy. Wow. Really good guy. Harold, what about you? 
Well, you worked with him the longest, it sounds I, like. I had a wonderful daddy and mama. There was eight boys and one girl in my family. We grew up poor. Lived up what we bought, about what we grew. But Bud Moore was the closest thing to my daddy that you could ever get. He he took care of me. He never, Donnie knows this. Phil does too, probably. He never said a bad word to me, never. Tell a story about Bud when Doug Williams before Donnie come. We was at Wilkesboro, and Bud and Benny, uh, Bud and Barney Hall and uh, Earl Parker would go play golf at Wilkesboro. Well, me and Doug had talked about it. See, I was kind of in charge of getting the the motor ready, and Doug was in charge of the chassis. So Bud would tell me what to set the timing on. Well, on Saturday, on Saturday back then, you run a little bit, and then you close up and done your thing but anyway Bud and them went to play golf and I took me a marker and marked on the scripture because <laughs> I felt like he was every time Bobby I was anybody else getting that car I said don't run like it did yesterday and I kept telling Doug Bud's knocking that he's knocking that time back out so I got there that Sunday morning and Bud got there for me and Doug did he said Shorty, come here. He said, uh, he doesn't have to hood up on the car, but he doesn't tuck the marker off. He said, who put that marker on that distributor? I said, I did. He said, Shorty, don't never do that again. I said, but I promise you I'll never do it again. And that's the true story. Be down every week. Be down every week. <laughs> <in your car>. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that's what was happening, because I know motors. I knew motors. Yeah. I, and I know what it took to make them run. Yeah, he didn't. Want, he didn't like to push the motors too much. No, he did not. He didn't like to push the motors. Why is that? Afraid of blowing up, you know. And they had a lot of issues. That was probably I wasn't there then, but that's probably one of the biggest reasons Earnhardt didn't stay as long as he stayed when he was there. We were leading eighteen races, and they blew up so much. That's yeah. why they had the bow spring problem. Yeah. yeah, we blew up. We're leading eighteen races and blew up. Now, you have mentioned Buddy Baker. Over the years, you guys worked with a lot of different drivers with Bud. Mm-hmm. You said that you were close to Buddy Baker. Who were some of the other drivers that, that you got pretty tight well, with? as far as the driver, yeah. well, Bobby Allen was the best driver I ever worked for. If Bud had listened to him, we'd run more races than we did. Bobby knew how to set a car up. He'd been in business for himself two or three different times, and you know, went broke. Yeah. But I never forget one time we was at Martin, we was at uh, uh, Bristol, and Bobby always flew back home to run a dirt track race in Alabama, and uh, he come to me and said, uh, "Don't you touch that motor." And he told Doug Williams, said, don't you change nothing on that car. That was on Friday night. Come back on Saturday about dinner time, we got in the car and run. He run one lap. He got out and he said, Doug, did you change that right front shock? He said, yeah, I did. Bud told me to. He said, where's Bud at? He said, over in the truck. Bobby went and got him. And that's exactly what he told him. You want me to drive his car 
tonight? Bud said, yeah. He said, well, put that shot back on that car then. That's how good Bobby Allison was. Was Bobby stubborn sometimes, though? I wouldn't say he was stubborn. Uh, he was like all of us. He wanted to win. He wanted to win all the time, but I wouldn't call him being you know, okay. stubborn. He never was really said nothing bad about yeah. the team. Yeah. Well, speaking of Bobby Allison, one race I did want to ask about specifically, and I guess you were the only one that was there at that time, 1978 Daytona 500. Mm-hmm. You get to go to Victory Lane yep. in Daytona. What did that mean to you? Well, it it meant the world to me, really. But I knew I was involved in winning Daytona 500. What do you remember about the day? About the day? About that day, yes. Well, I wondered if a lap we were going to make it or if we were going to win. I thought we had a good shot of winning. But till a checkered flag falls, you don't ever know. But I felt like we had a, if we didn't blow up or wreck or something, we was going to win that race. Bud Moore, as I mentioned earlier, was a World War II veteran. Did he talk about that much? How many times, Donnie? <laughs> Every time we'd get about half. Well, it just depended. And it, yeah. we all listened to it because we had heard it a lot, but it was always interesting. It was. You know? That some of them would say, you know, like we're blowing the sand off the beach again or something like that. But we all respected that. You know what I mean? I, I listened to it. I don't know how many times. I used to drive him a lot back and forth the races when I first started. So I would drive him to the race and then drive him home a lot of times later on. So that was some pretty good experiences there. It'd just be me and him and Greg and my wife. My wife went a lot early on. Now, what was that dynamic like with? Bud and Greg, because Greg, Greg, Greg was an interesting character. He, he was. I mean, they butted heads a lot. Yeah, they would get yeah. mad and they would fuss and fight and cuss one another and and go on that, go on about their business. And Daryl was kind of just the opposite. He was the main engine guy there. He, yeah. he him and uh, Jerry Mason and at the time Daniel. Yeah. And I guess that was it. There was only three guys in there, but uh, but they're not. <laughs> Daryl never did come to the race. No, Daryl never went. So, but yeah, he, uh, they had a lot of differences, but I think they had a lot of respect for one another. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Show Place. And first of all, Steve, I really enjoyed doing this interview because it gave me an entirely new perspective on what it was like to work for Bud Moore. In my mind, when I think of Bud Moore, not only do I think of him as a racer, I also think of him as a World War II veteran. So you're thinking of him as a hardcore, rough, tough, no-nonsense kind of guy. And I think that he was all of those things to a certain extent. But like these guys in this interview say, once you got to know Bud, there was this different side to it. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. No doubt he had to be somewhat a rough kind of character to do what he did in World War II. As they said, as you got to know him, you saw a much different guy. Bud was very down-to-earth, very humble, very friendly, and very funny. Well, Bud fired one gas man, 
and went to Phil Thomas and basically ordered him to take over. <laughs> Boy, can you gas this car? Phil says, well, I ain't never done that before. To which Bud replies, damn, I didn't ask you if you'd ever done it before. Can you gas this car? And that's how Phil Thomas became the gas man for Bud Moore Engineering. And at the same time, Phil was working full-time for Holly Farms and eventually retired as the division manager and was on the board of directors. But he had hung around with MC Anderson's team while Benny Parsons was driving the 27 car. Benny moved to Bud's in 1981. Phil went with him. And after Benny left, Phil stayed. And he wound yeah. up gassing that car for well over a decade. Well, I think that pretty much indicates how Bud ran his team. Bud's team was not a glamour organization. Didn't have these big showrooms and shops and everything. And people coming in by droves to take a look at everything around. It was a pretty Spartan outfit and i think bud relied a lot on the loyalty of his employees to keep going because i don't think he had a very high numbered personnel roster of full-time people no he did not well donnie started out working for jimmy means but after he went over to buds he stayed there for 11 years harold stott worked for gc spencer and james hilton and cecil gordon before landing with bud and he wound up being one of the longtime stalwarts and stayed there for 22 years. And Harold came up with what is probably the most colorful description of a driver I think that I've ever heard. <laughs> Steve, are you sit? Are you sitting down? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, let me have Her it. Harold Stott said that he loved Buddy Baker, but added that Buddy could not drive a peg up a billy goat's butt <laughs> <laughs> anywhere but at daytona and talladega <laughs> could not well, drive a peg up a billy goat's butt okay <laughs> i right. want write, write that one down that's a good one <laughs> no the thing about buddy was yes he was considered a big time lead foot and even bud moore said my driver buddy baker loves talladega and Daytona. So he had a reputation of being a super speedway driver. But here's the catch. He won Martinsville driving for the Wood Brothers. Yes, and after did. that win, I came up to him and said, hey, it's short track buddy. He said, don't mess with me, man. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think that Bud's employees were so loyal to him? Why, Why was that? I think, as I said earlier, Bud's operation pretty much laid back. Everybody got along. Bud was a very good boss. Now, I'm sure he could be demanding. At the same time, he worked with his crewmen. So that created a very healthy working environment. I think the guys liked that so much, they chose to stay. Well, we have all heard about drivers who pitch fits over the radio and abuse their pit crew. And I'm not going to name names. According to Donnie, that did not fly with Bud Moore and more power to you, Bud Moore. If anybody had said even half of what some of the drivers today say to their crews, Bud Moore would have met them in the garage holding the tire iron and not smiling. I'm sure. That would not have flown with Bud Moore at all. Now, also, it did not fly with Bud Moore 
when other drivers got into wrecks with his drivers. Harold told the story of an incident between Dick Trickle and Rusty Wallace. And the next week they're at breakfast. Dick is with them. Rusty walks in and Bud absolutely blasts Rusty (laughs) right there in front of God and everybody. (laughs) Here's how much Bud Moore meant to his people. Harold said that Bud wound up being as close to his own dad as you could possibly get. And he actually stayed in touch with Bud and visited Bud right up until the very end when Bud passed away a few years ago. Everything the guys have mentioned, it strengthens the argument that as loyal as Bud's people were to him, he was just as loyal to them, you know, defending them from any drivers trying to badmouth them over the radio. Uh, accusing another driver of wrecking one of his guys and standing up for him. That's just the kind of thing I think endeared Bud to his workers and why those guys stayed so long. I seem to remember at Darlington one year, I think Morgan Shepard was driving for Bud and he got into it with Ken Schrader and Bud was not happy with Schrader at that point. And again, Bud said something to the effect of somebody needs to straighten him out with a tire iron. <laughs> <laughs> so don't mess with Bud Moore's people or drivers. Uh-uh, no. no way, no how. That reflects very good on Bud in terms of being a boss. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. And in the April 23rd, 1981 issue, Steve Wade makes his debut as the executive editor of Grand National Scene. Now, you had started freelancing for Scene pretty regularly, I think back in 1978. So you had written for them for about three years and you'd actually been on the cover once before you took over as executive editor. And Steve, we've talked about your move from Roanoke to Scene before. But once you started at scene, did you come in with an idea of any kind of changes that you wanted to make, or were you pretty satisfied with the way that things had been going? I'll tell you, Rick, the one adaptation I wanted to make was to myself, because you got to remember, I came in from a rather large metropolitan newspaper into a converted country store. I had, I had a desk and a chicken wire in basket and an old Royal typewriter on that desk. That's all I had. And this is a big change for me. So the first thing that went through my mind is I better adapt. I better learn 
how these guys run things around here because this is a totally different environment. And I'm the one that has to change to make sure I adapt with it. And then I can apply my own ideas. What was your relationship like with publisher Rob Griggs and editor Gary McCready? Well, Rob was a pretty mercurial guy. He could be hot and he could be cold. <laughs> I've heard that all, about him. <laughs> oh, yeah. But he was always fair to me. I mean, I, I enjoyed working with him, no problems. He delivered everything he said he was going to deliver to scene over the years. Gary Creed was as straight and humble a guy as you could ever want. He loved working for that newspaper. Gary had a lot of experience as a technical writer. And so he applied that to what he did. And I thought he was a, just a terrific guy to work with. Here's a little known fact. We've mentioned many times my collection of scenes. And when I went to work for scene, Gary is the one that I got all of the early years from. I bought out Gary's collection from basically the very beginning up huh. until I went to work for scene. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, didn't know I got that. all his newspapers. Bought them at Darlington. I'll never forget it. Loaded them up into the car. And I was showing the very first issue around in the press box. Deb Williams opened up the very first issue ever and tore part of the page. Uh oh. <laughs> oh, Deb. <laughs> Speaking of a tire iron. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't have one then. <laughs> <laughs> but Steve, this was an off week issue. And I guess that I would assume that you guys did that intentionally because it would be a little bit slower and you could kind of ease in there. There wasn't any race coverage in this issue, but there was quite a bit of breaking news to cover. The tough lawn engine treatment company had been announced as the sponsor for Rainier racing and Bobby Allison. For the 1981 season, the previous November. And according to Gene Granger, the deal was for $1.5 million over three years. So basically half a million dollars a year. And that was good money for that time. Believe me. Well, it would have been good money. <laughs> <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> but by this issue in late April, Tough Lawn was already off the car. And Harry Rainier said, I told them I had to know what they would do by January 15th. They performed paying us for the first five races in advance. After the fifth race, they wanted to know if they could pay me quarterly. Then mysterious things began to happen. I decided I didn't need another controversy. They didn't come through. So my decision was to get out. Now we have been victims of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Believe me, I'm not smart enough to tell a lie. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, at that time, there were a lot of these so-called fly by night sponsors that made their way into racing. And I don't know where they came from or where they went. I can tell you this. I never saw a bottle of Teflon in any auto parts store. And I looked just for the heck of it. I couldn't find it. And I never saw one. Well, all this was taking place as the controversy over the team's Pontiac Le Mans yeah. was still burning pretty bright and Harry Rainier was not happy about it. He said, I'm still a little bitter at NASCAR because they more or less took the Le Mans away from us. It was kind of an insult to me. And we all know the story about how yeah. that happened. It was really a grand Le Mans and it was 
on the list of eligible cars to race in NASCAR. Because of its aerodynamic design, it was tough to beat, especially at the big tracks. So NASCAR pretty much legislated it out of business, mostly by adjusting the spoiler height until it was just no good. There was another story by Gene Granger saying that Jim Testa was selling his team's equipment, which left Lenny Pond without a ride again. But Jim owned a truck stop there in Kings Mountain, North Carolina. And Jim said, the truck stop business is not big enough to afford a racing team. I decided that we could continue without a sponsor. And it's sad because Lenny would have made a sponsor happy. He's a champion. Without somebody footing the bills, I couldn't continue. This is an expensive circuit. Nothing comes cheap. I figured that before I got in, but I thought they would notice it. Obviously, nobody did. Jim did what many team owners did during that time. They started a team. They filled their car. They tried to draw enough attention to attract a sponsor. They couldn't attract a sponsor, so they dropped out. He wasn't the first to do that, and he wasn't the last either. Well, it wasn't the last that we would hear from Jim Testa. Jim did field a car for Lenny again in one race in 1984 and then came back full-time with Derek Cope in 1988 before selling to Bob Wickham early the following season in 1989. And, of course, Derek finished out the 1989 season with Wickham Racing. The 1990 Daytona 500 came along. Uh, that's right. <laughs> And Steve, if Harry Rainier and Jim Testa were having a bad time with sponsors and not finding sponsors, Donnie Allison pretty much chose the nuclear option <laughs> <laughs> with team owner Kenny Childress. Donnie said, I didn't know Harry Gant had driven the car at Wilkesboro until my mother told me. My mother. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I just found out about four days ago that Gant was driving the car at Martinsville. Is that loyalty? Kenny hasn't told me anything, but I don't care now. As of April 13th, 1981, he can do as he pleases. He doesn't ever have to talk to me ever again. I have my own ride now. And Steve Donnie was not done. (laughs) The coal miner, meaning Kenny, he was a coal miner, I believe, in Kentucky or West Virginia, somewhere in there. The coal miner may have IRS problems and or coal mining problems, but he could have at least leveled with me. We worked our tails off to get a new car ready for this year. And I want to tell you that the car was a piece of junk. When I can't drive a car straight down the straightaway, well, it's junk. Well, come on, Donnie. Tell us what you really (laughs) think, all right? Actually, he had a very good reason for feeling that way. Obviously, if the team owner didn't tell him anything, I think Donnie reacted just as well as he should have. I don't know what was going on. I wasn't there, but evidently Donnie Allison did not care for the way that he had been treated. There was the feature on Bud Moore's crew, which featured bios for several members of the team. Harold Stott worked part-time with Bud and part-time as a mechanic at Lowry Chevrolet in Landrum, South Carolina. He changed rear tires during pit stops and helped Doug Williams get the car race ready at the shop. Harold said, it's mine and Doug's job to get the car ready for a race. 
we check it from one end to the other and make sure it's ready to go. Occasionally, I'll help out at the track, but most of my job is at the shop. Let's say that again. He was in charge of making sure that the car was ready to race, and he was part-time. Consider that, if you will. Two guys, only two guys, are responsible for getting the car ready for a race. You know how many guys are doing that job today and in specialized positions? You can hardly count them. Doug Strange drove a tractor trailer for a bakery in Spartanburg, and his route evidently followed the Winston Cup circuit. Donald said, at certain races, I'll be there for everything, and at other times, I'll just make it on Sunday. At Atlanta, Talladega, and Daytona, I'll bring the truck because it's on my way back home. I try to take my vacation so I can go to California in January, June, in November. So again, there's another part-time weekend warrior guy who evidently drives his bread truck to the, to the racetrack. (laughs) And what, what did we say earlier about Bud not having a large full-time roster? This kind of proves that, don't you think? And Steve, what makes it all the more impactful for me is the fact that this was not a back of the pack team. No, Bud Moore at that time was contended for race wins each and every week. That's right. And having Uh, hall of fame drivers in his car. Well, we've talked about all these part-timers. Now let's just say something else. Let's call them talented part-time workers because that's what they were. I did not know this Brent Moore, the second oldest of Bud's three sons was a nuclear engineer who graduated from Clemson. I didn't know that either. I, did I really not didn't remember that at all. Ken Myler served as one of the team's two gas men, and he was married and had four children, 10 grandchildren, and one great grandchild. <laughs> <laughs> but he wouldn't say how old he was. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, after last week's interview with Robert Calicut and everything that happened to him with the pit fire, there's a photo with this feature that shows Ken and the catch can man gassing the car wearing short sleeve shirts. Well, that's the way it was back then, Rick. It took the kind of accident that happened to Robert for teams to wake up and start outfitting their guys in safety gear as much as possible. And of course, it's been very successful because look at the crewman now. That is one of the things that stood out about this story. But the other was this. Other than Bud and his son, Greg, Ken Myler, and Doug Williams, and as we've mentioned, everybody else that this story mentions appeared to be part-time help at that point. Part-time talented help. That's the key word to me. Absolutely incredible. There was also a photo spread on a charity basketball game that had taken place recently. Richard Petty is playing in jeans. Del Earnhardt has on a pair of jorts. Jay Wells is riding on Jackaroot's shoulders. And Steve, this is one of those times that I truly and dearly wish that I owned the rights to Grand National Scene and Winston Cup Scene just so I could post the photo of you that appeared with this charity basketball photo. Oh spread. my gosh. Oh, I don't know what the heck you were wearing. 
but you've got on a knit beanie cap, <laughs> a t-shirt with the word nuts on it, <laughs> a pair of loud print shorts, and to complete the ensemble, long black socks. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was asked to play in that basketball game, I knew one thing for sure. I wasn't going to be very good at all. I mean, you know, white men can't jump, that kind of thing. <laughs> so I decided, okay, well, I'll be the uh, class clown. So I got that knit beanie cap, which was a Benny Parsons cap that you could buy. The only person other than myself that I ever saw wearing it was Benny Parsons. Outside, <laughs> I don't know if another individual ever put it on. So I dressed the part. Okay, I'm going to be the clown. Have some fun out here. Seemed to work. I did get a few laughs. You were truly the court gesture. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Hey, y'all, this is Ward Barton. Hi, fans, this is Butch Mock. Hi, everybody, this is Jimmy Mange. Hi, I'm Ricky Craven. Hi, this is Morgan Shepard, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace, and if you have any questions or comments, you can now reach out to either one of us via Rick at the scene or Steve at the scene Steve, we are official. Now we don't have to go through Yahoo. <laughs> <laughs> Let me clarify this. If you have complaints, Write Rick at the scene <laughs> And if you have praise, write Steve at the scene <laughs> Okay. All right. I see how it is. Listeners, I would also sincerely like to thank Peter Salino and the team at Centaur Media. Sound help is provided by Todd Phillips. Video production is by NASCAR Man. And music is provided by Joey Step and Frantic Radio. All right, fire away whenever you're ready. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. Damn. <laughs> Steve, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew I forgot something. Uh, we're off to a good start. <laughs>